This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Welcome back, book nerds. I hope your week is off to a great start. I'm sitting here on this fine morning, sipping on a matcha latte. I've not always liked the taste of matcha, but it's definitely grown on me. I like to add about a teaspoon of pure vanilla to it. Makes all the difference. As of this recording, I just finished reading a book titled Georgie All Along by Kate Claiborne. I really, really liked it. I thought it was going to be a cutesy rom-com and it was going to get on my nerves and I'd probably have to put it down and pick something up and it would take me forever to get through it. But it turned out to be a really enjoyable read. I'll have a review, I think next week actually, is when I'll do it. So stay tuned for that. Today, I'm going to share my thoughts on What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez by Claire Jimenez, Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale, and Colleen Hoover's Without Merit. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's new releases. The list is definitely much shorter this week than it was last. So we have The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brammer, described as a big-hearted and life-affirming debut about a death doula who, in caring for others at the end of their life, has forgotten how to live her own. We also have Atalanta by Jennifer Saint, from the beloved best-selling author of Electra and Ariadne, a reimagining of the myth of Atalanta, a fierce huntress raised by bears and the only woman in the world's most famous band of heroes, the Argonauts. We also have Nigeria Jones by Ibi Zoboy, a bold new coming-of-age story which explores race, feminism, and complicated family dynamics about a girl whose father is a leader of a black liberation group. We also have No One Needs to Know by Lindsay Cameron, When an anonymous neighborhood forum gets hacked, the darkest secrets of New York's wealthiest residents come to light, including some worth killing for. And last on the list is This is the Way the World Ends by Jen Wilde. Fans of One of Us is Lying and The Hazelwood are cordially invited to spend one fateful night surviving an elite private school's epic masquerade ball. I've noticed there's a lot of books with lying in the title, like everybody's a liar these days, which not surprising. I mean, look at the state of our world, especially the state of the United States. Everyone's a liar. But I find it interesting that that theme is so prevalent in so many books these days. Anyway, looking at the list, the very short list, I pre-ordered The Collected Regrets of Clover And I'm interested in Atalanta, but only because I was in a play about Atalanta when I was in fourth grade. So I don't know. I guess I'm having a little childhood something or other. I'm also interested in Nigeria Jones. I'll probably check that one out. This week, I also purchased Allegedly by Tiffany D. Jackson. 
Ugly Love by Colleen Hoover, Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman, The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune, Black Sun, and Fevered Star, both by Rebecca Roanhorse. And the last two came as a recommendation from my work friend Karen. I also got Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, and most of these I found for $1.99 or $2.99 on BookBub. Gotta love good old BookBub. And no, that was not an ad. To my watch list, which is a list of books I'm keeping an eye on but haven't yet bought, I added No One Needs to Know by Lindsay Cameron, Missing Clarissa by Ripley Jones, The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling, and Looking for Jane by Heather Marshall. All right, that was short and sweet, so let's jump into the reviews. First on my list is What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez by Claire Jimenez. This book was first published on March 7th, 2023 by Grand Central Publishing, and the synopsis reads, The Ramirez women of Staten Island orbit around absence. When 13-year-old middle child Ruthie disappeared after track practice without a trace, it left the family scarred and scrambling. One night, 12 years later, Oldest sister Jessica spots a woman on her TV screen in Catfight, a raunchy reality show. She rushes to tell her younger sister Nina. This woman's hair is dyed red, and she calls herself Ruby, but the beauty mark under her left eye is instantly recognizable. Could it be Ruthie after all this time? The years since Ruthie's disappearance haven't been easy on the Ramirez family. It's 2008, and their mother Dolores still struggles with the loss. Jessica juggles a newborn baby with her hospital job, and Nina, after four successful years at college, has returned home to medical school rejections and is forced to work in the mall folding tiny bedazzled thongs at the lingerie store. After seeing maybe Ruthie on their screen, Jessica and Nina hatch a plan to drive to where the show is filmed in search of their long-lost sister. When Dolores catches wind of their scheme, she insists on joining, along with her pot-stirring holy roller best friend Irene. What follows is a family road trip and reckoning that will force the Ramirez women to finally face the past and look toward a future, with or without Ruthie in it. What happened to Ruthie Ramirez is a vivid family portrait in all its shattered reality, exploring the familial bonds between women and cycles of generational violence, colonialism, race, and silence, replete with snark, resentment, tenderness, and of course, love. I really enjoyed this book, even though it ended up differing from what I expected it was going to be. The synopsis implies that a majority of the book will center on a road trip comprised of the two sisters, their mother, and their mother's Bible-thumping friend, when in truth, the road trip is only like maybe two to three chapters toward the end of the book. Still, it's a fun read. The book alternates between the points of view of the Ramirez women, Mother Dolores, oldest child Jessica, and the youngest child, Nina, as well as a few chapters from the point of view of the woman who may or may not be the lost Ruthie Ramirez. As the title lays out, Ruthie Ramirez went missing when she was 13 years old. The family has gone 12 years with no answers. Their father died without knowing what happened to his daughter, but the family still hopes that she just ran away and one day they'll find her. Ruthie was a bit of a rebel, and she and her mother didn't have the best relationship, so the family strongly believes that she just ran away. When Jessica is up late one night, she's watching a reality TV show titled Catfight, and one of the women on the show, named Ruby, looks a lot like Ruthie. Sure, it's been 12 years, but she looks like what Jessica imagines Ruthie would look like now. She even has Ruthie's birthmark beneath her eye. 
Jessica doesn't want to get her mother's hopes up, so she gets Nina, her younger sister, involved, and it doesn't take her long to convince Nina that it could quite possibly be Ruthie. Kind of makes sense that Ruthie would be on a reality TV show where she has to fight to stay on the show. In chapter one of the book, Nina says, and I quote, In my fourth grade mind, Ruthie was invincible. 13-year-old queen of the quick comeback, hoop earrings and Vaseline, patron saint of fist and the late night call home from the principal. A majority of the book alternates between Nina and Jessica as they try to make their way through their lives while they're also trying to figure out whether the Ruby on TV is in fact their sister Ruthie. There's only one way to find out, and that's figuring out where the show is filmed and then try to get there so they can find out for sure. We also get several chapters from Dolores, the mother's point of view. These were some of my favorites. Most of her chapters were her talking to God about how thankless her daughters were. She was a hoot. Now, as I mentioned, we ultimately get an abbreviated car trip as the family and Irene set out to find out if TV Ruby is Sister Ruthie, and comedy ensues. The book ultimately ends in a bittersweet but surprising way. This was a quick and easy read filled with humor and a lot of heart. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll finish off with the other two reviews. Next, I have Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale. This book was first published on October 8th, 2015, and was a Goodreads Choice Award winner for Best Historical Fiction that same year. The synopsis reads... In love, we find out who we want to be. In war, we find out who we are. France, 1939. In the quiet village of Caravaux, Vianne Moriac says goodbye to her husband Antoine as he heads for the front. She doesn't believe that the Nazis will invade France, but invade they do, in droves of marching soldiers, in caravans of trucks and tanks, in planes that fill the skies and drop bonds upon the innocent. When a German captain requisitions Vianne's home, she and her daughter must live with the enemy or lose everything. Without food or money or hope, as danger escalates all around them, she is forced to make one impossible choice after another to keep her family alive. Vianne's sister, Isabel, is a rebellious 18-year-old searching for purpose with all the reckless passion of youth. While thousands of Parisians march into the unknown terrors of war, she meets Gaten a partisan who believes the French can fight the Nazis from within France, and she falls in love as only the young can, completely. But when he betrays her, Isabel joins the resistance and never looks back, risking her life time and again to save others. I know that I said on a past episode that I am always saying that I'm not one for historical fiction, yet every time I read a historical fiction book, I end up loving it. Such was the case with The Nightingale. I think my biggest problem is that when I think of historical fiction, I think of war, which means I'm thinking about the senseless fighting and the shooting and the killing. Now, while this book is set during World War II, we're not on the battlefield. We experience the war through the eyes of two sisters, Vianne and Isabel, who both did extraordinary things during World War II to help stop the Nazis' rise to power. The book begins in 1995 on the Oregon coast, we meet an unknown woman whose son is helping her move into a nursing home. 
She had battled cancer before, but it has returned. She's a widow, and she knows she needs to move into the home because her son can't be there for her 24-7. But we know this is the last thing she wants to do. She goes into the attic to retrieve something important to her before she leaves, and her son asks what it is. And all of a sudden, we're transported back to France. This is when we meet Vian, whose mother died when she was a teenager, and her father, suffering from the effects of fighting in World War I, takes Vian and her much younger sister Isabel to live with another woman. While there, Vian meets and falls madly in love with a boy named Antoine. The two fall in love, and after a few miscarriages, manage to start a family. Isabel, the younger sister, stays in the home but is quite the rebel and is kicked out of several schools repeatedly. Soon word comes that the Nazis are on the move and they are advancing on France, but no one thinks this will actually happen. But then it does. And when it happens, Antoine is whisked off to war, and it isn't long before the Nazis have moved in on Vian's town, and eventually her home, when she is forced to let one of the men live with her and her daughter. Meanwhile, Isabel is determined to fight back. She has returned to Paris to live with her father, but he refuses to let her stay with him. It's too dangerous. So he sends her to Caravaux to live with Vian, but on her way she meets a man who is part of the resistance and she falls madly in love with him. While Vian is more reserved and isn't much of a fighter, at least not in the beginning, Isabel can't help herself and she knows if she stays with Vian and her daughter much longer, she'll end up causing them harm. So she returns to Paris again and starts up work with a resistance group to help downed English and American soldiers sneak out of Nazi-inhabited France to safety. Meanwhile, Vian is caught up in a dangerous game with the Nazis as she watches her Jewish friends get carted off in buses and trains. Unwilling to do nothing, Vian rebels in her own quiet way, putting both herself and her young daughter at risk. As the book progresses, we periodically jump forward to 1995 to the woman we meet in the first chapter. Until close to the end, it's unclear whether this woman is Vian, whether she's Isabel, or maybe Vian's daughter. It's a beautiful, sweeping novel that had me riveted the entire time. The book pretty much has everything. There's romance, there's action, there's tension, there's heartbreak. I loved it. Had I not told myself that I had to read every Reese's Book Club pick this year simply to expose myself to books I might not read otherwise, I probably never would have picked up this book. I'm so happy I did. I gave it 5 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. I recently read that a movie is being made starring Elle and Dakota Fanning as Vion and Isabel. I can totally see those two playing these characters. Definitely looking forward to that. All right, it's time for the last book. I am closing out with yet another Colleen Hoover book. And I can tell you that as of this recording, this is the last Colleen Hoover book that I've read. So it'll probably be two or three weeks before I read my next. So you'll have some time away from my Colleen Hoover obsession. That said, I'm going to share my thoughts on Without Merit. This book was first published on October 3rd, 2017 by Atria Books and was a Goodreads Choice Award winner for Best Romance that same year. The synopsis reads, Not every mistake deserves a consequence. Sometimes the only thing it deserves is forgiveness. The Voss family is anything but normal. They live in a repurposed church, newly baptized Dollar Voss. The once cancer-stricken mother lives in the basement. The father is married to the mother's former nurse. The little half-brother isn't allowed to do or eat anything fun. 
and the eldest siblings are irritatingly perfect. Then there's Merit. Merit Voss collects trophies she hasn't earned and secrets her family forces her to keep. While browsing the local antique shop for her next trophy, she finds Sagan. His wit and unapologetic idealism disarm and spark renewed life into her, until she discovers that he's completely unavailable. Merit retreats deeper into herself, watching her family from the sidelines when she learns a secret that no trophy in the world can fix. Fed up with the lies, Merit decides to shatter the happy family illusion that she's never been a part of before leaving them behind for good. When her escape plan fails, Merit is forced to deal with the staggering consequences of telling the truth and losing the one boy she loves. So I'm going to start out by saying that while I like the book, I didn't love it. And it's weird because I can't really put my finger on the why. I think a lot of it stems from the fact that I started out really liking Merit, and then after three or four chapters, I grew to really dislike her for at least the first half of the book. It felt like she was super whiny, very caustic. I had a really difficult time understanding her, but then, like I said, about halfway through the book, we learn that she suffers from depression, which turned things around for me, but not enough to make me end up loving the book in the end. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't hate it at all. It's definitely an interesting read. It's definitely entertaining. This is a family that you won't soon forget. I love that Merrick likes to go buy herself a trophy from a thrift shop whenever something random or disappointing happens to her. It all started when the guy she was dating broke up with her after making out with her. She stole his championship football trophy as she left his bedroom, and that started her obsession. Merritt describing this scenario actually made me laugh out loud. It's in the first chapter, and she thinks, and I quote, There I was, enjoying his hand on my boob, and all the while he was thinking of how he never wanted his hand on my boob again. And further down in the paragraph, she writes, That district championship football trophy was actually the start of my collection. From there, I'd pick up random trophies from garage sales or thrift shops anytime something shitty happened. And that she does. She's about to purchase a beauty pageant trophy for herself when she runs into this random dude who follows her out of the store and just grabs her and kisses her. Totally catches her off guard. She doesn't even know this guy. But then his phone rings and he answers it and is confused because, as he tells the person on the phone, but you're standing right in front of me. That's when Merritt realizes that he thought she was her perfect twin sister, Honor. Now all Merritt can do is think about this guy, Sagan, and how much she wants to kiss him again, but she can't because he's obviously dating her twin sister, which is a shock because Honor usually only dates guys who are on their deathbed. Sound morbid? (laughs) It is a little bit. The entire family is a hot mess. They live in a church that their father bought just to spite the former pastor, and then he converted into a house and moved the family into it. Their father cheated on their mother when she was being treated for cancer with her mother's nurse, got the nurse pregnant, married her, they had a kid together, but the mom still lives with them, though she lives in the basement in this little private sanctuary and she never leaves. Their older brother harbors a secret that only Merritt knows, and when her stepmother's younger brother suddenly shows up needing a place to live, Merritt doesn't think things could get much worse until Sagan, the mystery boy who kissed her, also moves in. Now what's she going to do? She's already been thinking about him nonstop, and just when things seems like they can't get much worse, 
Marriott happens to learn several family secrets that almost push her over the edge. The family is definitely quirky, there's no shortage of drama and unexpected twists along the way. I felt like the subject matter was definitely handled with care, especially the mental health aspect. The story was enjoyable, it just felt like a lot. But then maybe that was a point. Maybe the intent was to make the reader feel overwhelmed to get us into Merritt's head a little more. If that was the case, it definitely worked. While this isn't at the top of my must-read Colleen Hoover books, I enjoyed it well enough. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. All right, that's all I have for you today. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Back Where We Belong, that I do with my friend Aaron. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and Aaron and I revisit favorite movies and music from the 80s and 90s on this show. So if you're a Gen Xer, you'll definitely want to check it out. Join me next week when I review Kate Claiborne's Georgie All Along and Napolitano's Hello Beautiful, which, by the way, is my favorite book that I've read this year, and Victor Laval's Lone Women. Have a great week. Music